Good morning, church. My name is Dorothy Kim, and I'm a member of the Bojangles Coliseum community group. This morning's reading is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 43, verse 22, through chapter 44, verse 5. But, dear family of Jacob, you refuse to ask for my help. You have grown tired of me, O Israel. You have not brought me sheep or goats for burnt offerings. You have not honored me with sacrifices, though I have not burdened and wearied you with requests for grain offerings and frankincense. You have not brought me fragrant calamus or pleased me with the fat from sacrifices. Instead, you have burdened me with your sins and wearied me with your faults. I, yes, I alone will blot your sins for my own sake and will never think of them again. Let us review the situation together, and you can present your case to prove your innocence. From the very beginning, your first ancestors sinned against me. All your leaders broke my laws. That is why I have disgraced your priests, and I have decreed complete destruction for Jacob and shame for Israel. But now, listen to me, Jacob, my servant, Israel, my chosen one. The Lord who made you and helps you says, do not be afraid. O Jacob, my servant, O dear Israel, my chosen one. For I will pour out water to quench your thirst and to irrigate your parched fields. And I will pour out my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your children. They will thrive like watered grass, like willows on a river bank. Some will proudly claim, I belong to the Lord. Others will say, I am a descendant of Jacob. Some will write the Lord's name on their hands and will take the name of Israel as their own. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning again. I'm Howard Brown, pastor here at Christ Central Church. And as my time comes to a close here at Christ Central, and uh, we are moving on as a family as expected, lots of emotions and thoughts have bombarded my heart and mind. And one of the main things I've been struggling with is regret. Regret about things I have left undone here as your pastor. Relationships I should have had. Ways I should have and could have cared for you better. I have of late now that both my sons are moving on to college, been wrestling with Regret about my parenting and the ways my poor leadership has left bad marks and left them ill-equipped. As I pack and declutter, I'm coming across books and receipts and all kind of items, some of them still in the package, that I thought I would use and should have used and promised to read this and use this to better this or that and have failed to. Now some of that stuff is obsolete and headed to the landfill or thrift store. And the house, just looking at that more closely and the finances as I look at those things in the transition, so much regret in how money was or wasn't spent and improvements were done unwisely or by me poorly and not kept well. And now I'm paying for and dealing with things that could have been avoided through proper maintenance and care and less laziness on my part. 
And of course, my marriage and where Kelly and I have been and are going. So many mistakes, so many scars and so much to work on and work out and so much damage in doing ministry in the ways we did and shouldn't have and failed to care for each other well in it. Of course, personally regrets over having burned out and missed out on spiritual growth and the ways I just performed to make it happen and failed to properly self-care and enjoy the Lord and grow in grace. And here I am, right? A 50-year-old man filled and facing regret. And I believe and have learned, especially in transition, that this is true for all of us in some way. We're facing regrets in our lives. Various shades of guilt and shame and fear. Sort of living and waiting for the other shoe to drop because of what you did and failed to do and be. Living weighted down with the guilt and trapped in inadequacy. Just sort of watching your life and how you put it together drift out of your control out of your reach, possibly towards the rocks or out to a stormy sea. It is my hope today that we can together look into God's word and find hope for our mistakes, for our decisions that we now regret, right? For that heavy and heart-wrenching result you're living in. What I found this week for me and you is that in our transition in times of self-reckoning, we have a Lord who redeems regret. Who redeems our regrets. In three ways we'll see out of chapter 43 and 44 in Isaiah first. We'll see that it's human that we all deal with regret. Secondly, regrets must turn into repentance. Well, the Lord turns regret into repentance. And finally, the Lord turns our repentance into redemption. Whether we acknowledge it or not, like God's people who are being addressed here in Isaiah by the Lord 3,000 years ago in this passage, our regret, our shame, our strained relationships and depressed spiritual lives are part of living as broken people in a broken world suffering through a broken relationship with the creator and God of the Bible. Look at what he says in verse 22 in chapter 43 again. He says, but dear family of Jacob, you refuse to ask for my help. You have grown tired of me. Then he explains the failings of their religion, which we'll go back, get back to in a minute. But then in verse 26, it says, let us review the situation. You're in court, right? You're looking at your life. You're examining the bottom line. And it says, let us review the situation together. And you can present your case to prove you're innocent. Your innocence. From the very beginning, your first ancestor sinned against me. All your leaders broke my laws. That is why I have disgraced your priest. I have decreed complete destruction for Jacob and shame for Israel. Living in a broken world as broken people in any kind of messed up relationship with God ends with regret. 
The Bible is saying that the Lord has given and revealed himself to us in the word and to our hearts and minds, not just as a presence and person we have access to, to be instructed and guided to worship him and live for him in spirit and truth. But as verse 22 explains, we in our world want to do and have chosen to do and see things our way anyway. Sort of right in the face of what God has called us to be. In fact, God admits to us that we get tired of doing right and being in the wrong or being wronged and ultimately tired of a Lord who's supposed to be helping us. And so as, as verse 27 and 28 says, we humanity, much less as people here who are being addressed, are left with and in the carnage of a fallen world of sin, which causes us to fail and falter and get confused and make crazy decisions and not understand what the outcome is going to be based on what we do and basically miss the mark of the miss the mark with the lord others and ourselves welcome to fallen humanity we miss the mark did you expect anything better or greater for someone who's living in this broken place. And you know what happens? We find ourselves just like after this sort of court case here, right? This, 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 this ruling by the Lord here about how things work. We, we are left and find ourselves living and carrying the, the heavy loads of all kinds of past mistakes and questionable decisions in our marriages with our siblings and our parenting and our spiritual lives. Maybe it's your job or vocation and calling. Maybe it's who you dated and the way we gave and presented ourselves in, in intimate ways and sexual relating that we now regret. How self and success focused and driven we were. And now we see the cracks and dryness and curses in our children, in our work, and we carry this whole load of broken promises and failed dreams. Like God said about the priest here, there's this disgrace. There's the shame. Because we were too scared or, or maybe not smart enough to do this or that and what we should have majored in in school and, and what school you should have gone to and sent your kids to. And now you're on the outside looking in or trapped under a mountain of debt and shame and bad health even. Now we are what we feared most. We're living in and bearing the pain of something we tried so hard and wanted so hard to avoid. And let me tell you, I got a few generations under me now, you know? Let me let you know, that stuff gets heavier the older you get. Because when you're younger, I remember I was playing the game of, I can still get this done. <laughs> I have time. I can fix it. You know, this is interesting. The scriptures talk about generations. Later, they talk about children and children to parents. It's like generations of stuff, right? But I remember thinking, I can still get something out of this. I have time. I can fix it. Waiting for the next great thing. Waiting for my ship to come in, as they used to say. Or the greater you, uh, you to emerge, right? I know I'm finally going to break through after counseling and therapy. You still, some of us believe the things you cut corners in with the Lord and with your relationships, that's your selfishness. You know what they are right now to many of us? Good survival techniques. And maybe even promoting and promising in some way. 
And some are fine, especially when you are young, playing. Some of you love to play around with your faith. Your relationship with the Lord, you know, you're young. You kind of have to live. You know, unfortunately, you only get it when you're older. And stuff begins to settle down, the sediment. Because <laughs> when you're young, you just stir it up. And then one day, it slows down, and you see it. All the broken pieces. <laughs> all the decisions. All the cutting of corners. All the ambitious chasing. All the moving up. All the prideful anger between you and the one you're married to or the one you're, all that mess settles. Verse 26 and 28 are explaining that stuff goes, doesn't go away. The ingredients add together to create regret. So what do we do? with regret, with sins, with problems, with issues, with things we missed on 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. Like God's people back then, it's hard to hear, especially in a church. Most of us have turned to religion or spirituality of some sort. This is what the Lord says about it. Verse 22. But dear family of Jacob, you refuse to ask for my help. You've grown tired of me, O Israel. You have not brought me sheep or goats for burnt offerings. You have not honored me with sacrifices, though I have not burdened and wearied you with requests for grain offerings and frankincense. You have not brought me fragrant calamus or pleased me with the fat from sacrifices. Instead, you have burdened me with sins, your sins, and wearied me with your faults. Now, I'm going to tell you how to read this passage. It's not that they aren't doing religion or doing or giving sacrifices to the Lord. That's not what this passage is saying. You have to reread it and emphasize me. All right? Verse 23. You have not brought me sheep or goats for burnt offerings. You brought them, just not to me. You have not honored me, right? Though I've not burdened or wearied you, right? I'm not asking for the request from grain offerings. You have not brought me, right? You're just being religious because it feels so bad. The writer is showing us that religion is good at making us sad, They're bringing all kind of offerings to killing all kind of animals, right? I'm so sad this happened. I'm sorrowful and clear about my mistakes, past and present, and then offers a, not only, and what religion ends up doing is it offers a, not only a self-plan for relief in these sacrifices, right, but a symptomatic painkiller that lasts until our next time, right? That lasts until our ability to process mercy and forgiveness wear off or wear out, or the next pain cycle of shame comes through, or you are triggered by something you're kid or wife or financial statement says or does about you, right? 
plain old religion, right? Small r religion. And spirituality, the new thing people talk about, can give you, definitely give you exercises and routines and activities to fix and lessen the impact or, or try to lessen the impact of your re regret or even lull you to sleep for a season or, or helps you forget. And some of us even fantasize a happy ending. But more often than not, look at verse 26 to 28, it ends up again, right? But more often than not, when we try to write, make right, and write like a pen, our happiness, it ends up being a spiritual, this is what ends up happening, the spiritual karma-based deal with the Lord. Right? Sometimes it's like that, right? Let me bring some sheep and goat to the Lord. Let me do some things. Let me show off a little bit. Right? Where you do just enough of the right things, right? And be just spiritual enough to tip the balance and keep away shame and destruction that you see others experience and you fear might happen to you like a moral credit report before God. And we forget somehow we forget that we can't fix regrets with what could and probably ends with regret. Religion always ends with you never doing enough. You always make rules and deals with God you can't fulfill. You know how it is when you try to make a deal. You know you can't make that monthly payment. Hey, man, just, just try to work it out for me. You know you're not going to do it. If you got to work out a deal, the deal probably going to be broken, right? So the Lord is letting us know that this religion or personal resolve, I am going to do better, right? And just leave the past behind. I'm just going to set my face like Flynn. I'm just going to keep going and, or try to build on top of this, this, this regret. I'm going to put another lamb on the altar stuff because you just did it, right? It is a fail, the Bible is saying, when dealing with regret. Using a religion or personal spiritual strength or resolve to deal with regret always leads you back to, you guessed it, regret. You know how many devotional books and self-help books I have? You got it too. Plenty of books. You ain't broke them books open. Amazon got rich on you. Because of regret. I hate the way my... The, and then we actually buy books that prove we're messed up. Hey, a new life for dummies, right? Why would you get a book, a new life, dealing with regret for dummies? Right? Doesn't that just go ahead and tell you what's going to happen? If you've already been dumb about dealing with your regrets and you get a book, guess what's going to happen? You're going to be too dumb to read the book or follow through what it says. It don't work like that. I go in my office. Y'all can go in there. I got so many books. Open it just a little bit. You can tell I haven't cracked them open. And I look at them and I'm thinking, ah, I could have learned something if I actually opened a book, Right? actually follow through with a devotion. Not that those things aren't good, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. But our, so our religion of self-healing and dealing and trying to add up the right formula to deal with this pain we're feeling, to deal with how we're suffering, right, are not truly and fully facing and turning to him and bringing to him our brokenness or bringing him our burdens and regrets, we end up using religion to face and struggle and chew on and mow our brokenness, problems, and mistakes on our own. 
using the Lord and the Bible. That's why uh, he, he says uh, very clearly here, you know, oh, instead, what do you bring? You have burdened me with your sins and wearied me with your faults. That don't seem like a nice God. But what he's saying is this, you're using your faith in your religion like a mirror to show you how bad you are. So like, if you can just see it, if you can just know it, if you can just get the steps and kind of see how bad you are, that somehow you'll fix it. And what he's saying is religion is not a mirror. You have to use it as a, you're not, you're using it as a mirror instead of a looking glass to look for how God can help you. As of being able to look inside yourself, examine all the bad things you did. Even biblical counseling, spiritual tools will give you enough motivation or crazy enough on the other side. We do this. I hate this. I hate that I do this to myself and it really hurts when I see you do it. You just self-condemn. You use it to depress yourself with your problems and mistakes. You know, if you read this in the wrong way, <laughs> dude, there ain't a page you ain't wrong in, in here. If it's a mirror only, it'll make you hate yourself. And some of you hate yourself. You look at your life, you just want to Flush it. And many of us are self-hurting, condemning, and flogging ourselves and punishing ourselves for the mistakes we make. Why do you think you need to sacrifice yourself to fix your problem? If that is what your faith is about, and I've been there, man, I love moping sometimes. It almost feels good to just mope, man. Things just ain't right. If you're using the faith to hurt yourself, to punish yourself because you deserve it, I'm going to say that kind of faith ends up being about, about that faith that ends up being about you it's a false and evil and amalgamated religion. It's self-deprecating and it's a regret dark hole. That is not what the Bible or the God of the Bible is sharing and offering us. Because just looking and languishing and being sorry for yourself, like I could, man, whoo, I could preach a fiery sermon today. Y'all just fill the regrets because you didn't do the right thing. Look at you. Didn't trust God. Married that person anyway. Did this, did that. Amen. What? That ain't the gospel. But we do that to ourselves all the time. You know what it ends up doing? There are so many people who now regret believing. Because their faith, they're not at the church. 
They don't come to the Lord. They don't turn towards him anymore because they use the faith as a way to fix themselves. And they end up only condemning themselves. And so now they blame God for condemnation. And they blame the Bible and Christianity. Man, that church stuff is just condemning. I'm tired, as the scripture says in verse 22, I'm tired of the Lord. And the reason you're tired of the Lord is because you tired yourself with self-condemnation and self-fixing. You know, later in the Bible, much later, the Apostle Paul wrote this to a church that he was leading. He says, well, the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin. And I'm going to throw self-condemnation in with sin. Self-spiritual abuse. And some churches preach it. I'm such a sinner. And that's it? That ain't enough? Man, I made so many mistakes. Look at you. Look at the long list, right? <laughs> it's just, it leads us away from sin and results in salvation. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow, the Bible says. Let me read that again. He wrote this. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow, but worldly sorrow, it says, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. Just being sorry or hating yourself and trying to fix yourself spiritual death. And I've been down that dead end road before. It's not a cul-de-sac. It's a dead end. Killing myself. I could have good prayer times, good something, and I'm just digging into the, to the dirt. And I'm, buried, I'm digging my own grave, basically. Look at what the Lord says in verse 22 again. But dear family, I'm going to read this a lot. Dear family of Jacob, you refuse to ask for my help. You have grown tired of me, O Israel. You know what God's saying? You family. You are my children. You're my heart. And you are afraid of turning to me and trusting me and asking me for help for your failures and sufferings and struggles and mistakes and burdens. I don't want to be your insurance salesman that if you pay the premium, we good. No, I want you to turn to me as if you had nothing but a bunch of mess, as if I were your father who's God. Bring the regrets and let them be turned into repentance. Turning to God and turning over to the Lord our offenses against him and then others and then yourself. That is repentance. But it's hard, isn't it? It's pretty clear here from this passage in the Bible story that God is... saying, you people haven't done right, right? So imagine going and asking for help when you've done it right, uh, when when you've not been right uh, towards a parent or spouse, right? Now, if you've done everything right, I can gladly, I can gladly say, Daddy, you know, like sometimes my boys do, okay? I did it too, right? You know. I cut the grass, I did everything. Hey, you think I can have $20? Right? Easy. Right? But imagine this. Hey, son, don't go spend all your money in one place. I won't, boom, spend it all in one place. Dad, can I have $20? No. That's what God is saying. 
That's difficult. You, you turned against me. You tired of me. You mistreat me. I'm standing right there and you turn to other gods. That's later in Isaiah. You, you make these other gods instead of me. You, you love them more than me. But turn back to me. <laughs> what? Pretty clear here from this passage in the Bible's story that God is turned towards his people. Right? He is saying, I'm already a ride and in Jesus died for us, God. He ain't going nowhere. He is saying, I am family. So if you go down, I'm down. You go there, I'm there. Not just, to, not just to make you face and deal with your mistakes. Ultimately, I, God, know. God knows he's a lot. He knows being the most holy being that always and will ever was from everlasting to everlasting. God says, I know I'm extra. And it is hard in that light not to experience and see the darkness and mistakes in yourself. But he's also saying he has come turned to and for you so you can finally see not just your mistakes, but see how he sees and looks at and is turned in love towards you. Look at verse 28 here in chapter, wait, yeah, yeah, 28 in chapter 43, we're going to go into 44. Um, it says here, this that is why I've disgraced your priests. I've decreed complete destruction for Jacob and shame for Israel. But now, hit us. Listen to me, Jacob, my servant. Israel, my chosen one. The Lord who made you and helped you says, do not be afraid, O Jacob, my servant. O Israel, my chosen one. Now, I can't add much to this, right? Because this is clearly God is wide open and turning towards those who are trapped in regret, who must be repented. But do you see what happens? He calls us to turn to him, to take our regrets and bring our sins and issues and condemnation and fear and shame to him wholeheartedly. But God, for our regret to become repentance, has decided between verse 28 and verse through verse 1 and 2, do you see what happens? Oh, y'all evil, y'all bad, blah, blah, blah. There's disgrace, there's shame, there's judgment. There's all kind of stuff you guys deserve, right? You deserve to live in regret. But look what happens. See, but God, for our regret to become repentance, has decided to get this, to hear our regrets, and he has decided to repent first. God has decided when we can't repent, he will. To turn his judgment, deserve judgment away from us and turn his grace and love towards us. To take the shameful accusation of results that we deserve 
And so the Lord could and maybe should make us live in burden and shame forever. But God repents, basically. He turns and faces us with blessing instead of condemnation, with freedom, with joy, with hope, with acceptance, with affection. The Bible's teaching that we who turn to him are his chosen people because God has chosen to look at all of our mess and regrets and repent for us and for our good. This causes us to turn on the inside and then outside. Because when the Lord turns toward us, it means he's turning things within us. Let's look at verse 1 again in chapter 44. But now listen to me, Jacob, my servant. Israel, my chosen one, the Lord who made you and helps you says, do not be afraid, O Jacob, my servant, O dear Israel, my chosen one, for I will pour out water to quench your thirst and to irrigate your part fields, and I will pour out my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your children. They will thrive like watered grass, like willows on a riverbank. Some will proudly claim, I belong to the Lord. Others will say, I am the descendant of Jacob. Some will write the Lord's name on their hands and will take the name of Israel as their own. Remember, he doesn't want surface change. He doesn't want religious commitment only. He wants a heart that has been touched by his repentance. And he does just that. He churns the heart with the pouring in of his grace and mercy for our shame by filling us on the inside with cleansing and comfort and pain-altering love. And I have to keep reminding myself that the relationship we have or could have with the Lord is a supernatural happening. Religion is a human attempt to turn things around for yourself. But the supernatural work of God is about him turning himself and you and I being brought into that. And that being poured in and all over us by the Holy Spirit of God. Our struggle with regret is more than an emotional, historical, psychological, or human trauma event. It's a spiritual tragedy that the Lord works through the natural, ordinary world and circumstances. Yes, like religious activity, but with and by a spiritual, supernatural work that whereby he changes regrets to our repentance. If we are constantly stuck and dead-ended with regret and condemnation as woe is me, then it's a clear sign that you and I become more impressed with ourselves than we have with a God that has repented and turned and desired to turn things around in us. But the Lord is offering, giving us a repentant heart and life, one that lives able to believe and come to the realization that God is not tired of us. That, 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 we, that they are not tired of coming to God and bringing themselves a mess and all to just be and love like a benefactor of a spiritually rich, loving, and generous father that you have in God. You know, there is a scripture in the Bible that says, be still and know that I am God. Oh, I'm a warrior. I go things, through things over my mind because I think I can fix it if I just get the right angle to look at it. Let me urge you. What if 
the times we take rolling our regrets around in our minds and hearts, we're to roll around the way God loves us. What if we would just spend that time? It ain't going to feel right. It ain't going to feel right. I'm telling you right now, when you're dealing with regrets, you got to fix it, fool, right? That's what I be hearing. Get up off your knees. Come on, get out and do something. Change something. It ain't going to feel right. But imagine looking at verses 1 through 5 and just reading that and meditating on that and going over that in your mind over and over. Be still in your mind. Some of you in your mouth, that's me. I even be saying it out loud. And Kelly, like, what's wrong with you? I'm just mad at everything. I messed this up, messed that up, messed up. And he said nothing about the Lord yet. And he is saying everything wonderful about and towards me. And he takes that repentance, us turning to him, and he changes it to redemption. Chapter 1 through 5, y'all. I mean, verses 1 through 5. Woo! The Bible teaches what we already know and have experienced. We talked about our mistakes, our sin, our refusal to live and thrive in the Lord's life of blessing and benefit for us. All the stuff, all the mistakes, just living here, just things people have done to you have scorched our world. We've hurt those we love. And those things have left us unable and disabled for God's glory and our good. But the Lord is promising here to fill and fix and heal and do things you and I could never imagine happening in those same places and spaces that you messed up in. He takes the bad decision He takes the sin. He takes the deserved result of that sin. And it becomes a flower bed of his grace. It becomes a basin. Yeah, that thing that's empty to you, it becomes a spot and a place for God to pour in his grace and his love and his benefits in ways you could never imagine. Curious thing here, especially after baptism today. Verses 1 through 5 go into descendants, and God is going to bless our children, even put them and bring them back to where our regretful behavior and missteps, man, I need this to be true, may have alienated and separated and forfeited them. You know, one of the greatest regrets, like I said, is now dealing with how I failed my boys. Now they're going away. Again, in my mind, unprepared in their faith. In their understanding and love and relationship, I failed them in their education. Didn't invest enough for them to be successful. I was too self-focused, maybe church-focused. And in some ways, how we lived as a ministry family has drained and had adverse effects on them. In their relationship with the Lord, recently I was confronted by one of them that Kelly and my toxicity and the struggles of our marriage, the show of the church, and our twisted views on things are now his to carry. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I meant to tell you. You young parents, yeah, one day. Your kid's going to say, y'all were toxic. Y'all did this. Y'all messed up. I got to live with it now. What do you do with that? 
regret, right? And if you know your Bible, it is clear that sin and destruction and fear are inherited things, right? I can't get in. Something I want to talk about, but I'm not. But the Bible is saying here, not only will the next generation, hear me, not necessarily have to suffer for the regretful sins of their parents, but that God repent in that and turn it so that the next generation will be able to get the benefits and blessings as if they had perfect parents and were perfectly raised. Because God, in verse 22, is promising to be their father. I'm going to be careful not to minimize this into parents and kids thing, right? Though it might apply. This is a result of your life thing. I'm talking about your legacy. I'm talking about your bottom line of all things you have done and not done. Coming to fruition and probably should come up thorns and thistles and twisted and dark and poor and broken. So what is going here? God is saying, I am the perfect parent and perfect plan for things you have screwed up. I'm taking your repentance. And I'm going to bring redemption out of it. I am your father. What if the good news is that Invictus by Henley was wrong? What if you and I were not the master of our fate and captain of our souls? Oh, thank you. Because the good news of the Bible is that the Lord is the captain and master of his people's regrets. He has the right to make things all right for the bottom lines of our lives, wherever and however they will be. Because for his people, he is the father of our lives. He's the parent, if you will, of our lives. He's the source of our lives. He's the legacy giver of our lives. He steps in and becomes the reason how and why and when and then. And when that happens, regret doesn't have to control us if you are his children. It doesn't ultimately determine and define your end or your outcome or your potential, your power or your hope or your children or your marriage or your job or your heart or your mind and soul because God has turned it because God is in control and not our regrets. God is at the wheel of the control board and not our regrets because we are his now. There's a passage that comes a few chapters later that is familiar to some of us that says this. God's people says, say this, as they look at their life, as they look at the scorched earth that they've got now because of their decisions. The Lord has deserted us. The Lord has forgotten us. You know what God says? Never. Can a mother forget her nursing child? Can she feel no love for the child she has born? But even if that were possible, I would not forget you. Hear this. See, I've written your name on the palms of my hands. He said, you see that crazy thing in chapter 5 where it says some of our children will want to write his names on, our, on their hands? Ultimately, things turn out. Our regrets become redemption because God sent his son to die on a cross. He ultimately made good on fulfilled in real time and space the promises he made concerning turning to us. And Jesus had us and all of our regrets written on him. 
and he faced God and suffered for us, what we fully deserved in punishment. And he did it, the Bible says, with a joy-filled resolve that had no regrets in loving us and saving us. You and I need not live in regret with the fears and shame that our mistakes are promised to visit on us and our lives and those we love. And even if there is hardship and struggle and things are not perfect, we have a perfect parent in the Lord who has no regrets. Because he has written his name on his hand. And now in confidence, when we are struggling to believe any good or that God would be with us, we can proudly, as the scripture says here, we can proudly and loudly yell at and out of the darkness, out of despair, to yourself, even to your children, to your results, to what looks like condemnation, to what looks like the other shoe dropping. I belong to the Lord. My name is written on his hand. I am an inheritor of the good and grace and love of God and not the mistakes and condemnation of my own sin. I'm a child of God whose regret will and has been redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ. Take hope in that. Turn to him in that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. So many regrets. Oh, man, the little decisions. If we could have just said yes instead of no or no instead of yes. If we weren't so selfish, if we weren't so lazy, if we weren't so this, Lord... Call us to repentance by seeing how you repented, how you turned away from condemning us and in turn loved us. So many regrets. But Lord, we thank you. There isn't one that you aren't powerful enough to redeem. Lord, our children, we know we messed up. Our marriages, our friendships that are tenuous and strained, we know we messed up. Help us to move forward in repentance and ultimately to redemption. Lord, I pray for the injury that people have put on themselves and others in dealing with their regrets. Beating themselves emotionally and spiritually and psychologically. Beating others emotionally, psychologically, and spiritually after Christ has already been beat for us. Lift us up from the pit of condemnation and right into your face where we can see and know you have no regrets for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen.